Welcome to the second part of the Hospital Ball Radio York Sports Special with Barry Parker. Barry did Radio York's first ever full commentaries at Booth and Crescent and became the voice of York City during the 90s broadcasting on some of the club's most famous matches including Wembley in 1993 and the Cup Scalps against Manchester United and Everton. This episode is again sponsored by City Cruises, partners of York City Football Club and operating sightseeing and dining cruises out of York, London and Poole. Sightseeing Cruise, known as the York City Cruise, is indeed a homage to York City FC and supporters can get 10% off daytime and early evening cruises by quoting YCFC10 at the checkout. YCFC10 at the checkout. This is the last episode of the regular series and the final time to remind you the Hospital Ball is a spin-off of York Hospital Radio, a charity who rely on donations. If you have enjoyed this series, then please consider leaving a donation at justgiving.com slash York Hospital Radio. Justgiving.com slash York Hospital Radio. All donations are greatly received. But for now, and the final time for the series, please enjoy the Radio York Sports Special with Barry Parker. I think we'll start, Barry, by sort of acknowledging that this is your 40th year in broadcasting, which is an incredible achievement. And uh, you started out, I believe, in January 1981 for Radio Leeds, not talking about football, but talking about canals. That's absolutely right. I, I virtually got tricked into doing the interview because I was very shy and immature, totally unsuited to radio. And it was one of those where someone at the local canal society I was a volunteer for sort of hinted I might come and give a talk about towpath walking on rivers and canals. And I, I saw sort of very begrudgingly agreed to it on the basis that usually when people have those ideas, they forget about them. It never comes up again. But uh, they didn't forget about it. It came up shortly after Christmas. And so I ended up going into Radio Leeds in uh, January 1981. I'm giving what was a fairly dreadful interview, I'm quite sure, about canals, because I can remember them holding up bits of edited tape in front of me, about literally about a foot long, saying, that's a Barry Parker um. I, mean, I never went um, but I did then. But <laughs> what actually happened really was they were just transport enthusiasts. They were just amateurs putting this programme together. And I just sat there watching them. Now, I'm into pop music big time, so I listened to loads and loads of radio. And they were lovely people, but it just all sounded so amateurish. And I thought, if only I had the skills to do this properly, I'd love to be able to. Just watching them do this together. And I got very, very lucky in that they discovered I was a bus enthusiast on the way home. And they thought, oh, we haven't got a bus enthusiast on our transport team. Do you want to come back and do an interview on buses? So uh, that's the uh, side door I got in through. <laughs> and, and in terms of football, I think Le- Leeds United was your team growing up. And I guess it was probably hard not to be sort of captivated in those days under Tom Revy, I think you said and uh, you and your dad were season ticket holders at one point. It took a long time. It was a long waiting list in in those days. We just saw the very tail end of that era, but it was all super leads and everything, as you can imagine. So that was 
my local team in local radio, what happens, it was all a very step-by-step thing. You, you sort of, somebody suggesting the transport team, the guy who ran it called John Sully, a local councillor. And he said, you know, Barry, if you learn enough, you might get some paid work here. And I couldn't really believe this. But it, eventually it happened. I got some of the bottom line basic duties and managed to get through those. I wasn't very good as a tech op. But the staff people didn't like working weekends. So there's always something to do on the sport. So that's how I got in on the sport side. They just wanted people to help at weekends, just putting bits of tape off of reports that reports were sending or learning how to take the radio car out and getting your hands covered in grease and trying to get the mass back down again afterwards. Your Trevor Kays and Ron Hills could do the reporting on the rugby games or, or wherever it was. So from football... Leeds United at home to football in radio or rugby league and rugby union that that's where all that started that's how I got involved in sport in radio because I think you told me that your first match report was when you were at college in Portsmouth with a league cup match between uh, Brighton and Bradford that finished 5-2 I mean given it was such a high scoring game did that sort of whet the appetite for reporting on football <laughs> and I look back at the game that you'd mentioned there and I think players I recognise were like Dean Saunders for Brighton and Terry Yorra for, for Bradford I mean was it difficult to sort of fit all that, that into a match report given there were so many goals. I was really terrified because when people get into local radio, usually they're either very talented or they're a bit pushy and I was neither. So it was a struggle. It was just one step after the other. But eventually I learned the trade and by 85, I'd got to a point where I was capable of driving the most important programmes on Radio Leeds. One of them was a sport on Saturday afternoon. So the editors in those days were Steve Coverdale, originally at St. Peter's School in New York. I think he may come up again later. And Tom Schofield, his number two, who later on became editor and was very important for me. So I was driving these programmes and the fateful day came because I was. they didn't have many people who could do that job. So I was coming back from college in Portsmouth every two weeks to drive this programme. And we did, we had six teams every Saturday, usually. You're in, roughly in order, Leeds United, Bradford City, Huddersfield Town, or maybe Huddersfield, Bradford City, York City, Halifax Town, and Scarborough, the top non-league side uh, at the time. And uh, we had all those. And on this particular fateful day, we had a game between Wealdston and Scarborough. And sometimes we could send people down. John Champion was learning the trade, but he wasn't available. And the guy at Wealdston was dreadful. So I thought, here's my chance, because I know Brighton are playing Bradford City on the Tuesday. And I know Malcolm Scott, who did them, worked at the Yorkshire Bank in Manchester during the day, never get to it. I just might have a chance here. So I said to Tom, any chance possibly of maybe trying me as a reporter at the Brighton? game and of course he said well you can't be any worse than the guy at Wealdston so, so I got the chance the best thing I can say to you is I was very grateful to be able to keep up with the score but suffice to say I did just about well enough to get the gig again and I did quite a few games down south I was at Portsmouth actually including some at the old Wimbledon ground one involving Leeds United so the, that's where it all started as a reporter it also was where I started as a commentator during the experimental radio Highbury this is Highbury College of Technology Portsmouth I did my first ever would-be commentary a girls versus boys game. It was hilarious. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. There is a tape surviving, which I've not listened to in years. I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> you eventually ended up at Radio York and, and Boom Crescent in August 1990, seeing York City nil, Maidstone one, which I, I can't imagine was, was much of a classic. But was that sort of like a permanent role then that you were getting at Radio York for that? Yes. Straightforward answer. Yes. I've worked out by now, because you're going back a long way now, local radio couldn't afford commentaries in those days, were hardly any, ever. And very often they just sort of scrambled any reporter who was available. And all the authority came from the local papers. They sent their reporters to every single game home and away. So it's very hard to compete. And with now a 
journalism qualification, I thought, this is not the way it should be. We should be having the same reporters going to every game home and away on the same basis. And I worked that out, but couldn't find a way of sort of executing that anywhere. I'd hoped to do it at Humberside. That didn't work. When I got to York in November 89, they just acquired a guy called Ivan Ash, who was doing all Scarborough's game. It was very keen. It was good as well. So I thought, well, we've got Scarborough home and away. He sorted them out. There's a lovely guy called David Preston who did York City. David Preston was a, a travel agent, but by his own admission, he wasn't actually that good. He didn't really think it was for him. So come the summer of 1990, I thought, right, I don't really want to be sports said. I want to do some of the more creative stuff around the fringes. So we got a sports said, the wonderful Alistair Yeomans, who is still at Five Live, I'm pleased to say. Great guy. And I started doing York City Home and Away. I thought, this is it. Here's the chance to sort of achieve something career-wise. We've got someone doing every York game home and away, someone doing every Scarborough game home and away, and Harrogate were off the scale at that point. So it was intended I would do every game home and away, and we'd see where we could go with this in terms of competing with the other local media and just basically trying to do it what I consider to be properly. Yeah, I mean, I mean that season was a real slog, wasn't it, in terms of uh, York City's performance in the old sort of Division 4, but of course it pales into significance as David Longhurst tragically collapsed and, and died on the pitch. I know you were commentating that day. I mean, that must have been so difficult to broadcast. I mean, it's such an unprecedented situation and, and obviously we've had the Christian Eriksen one recently and I, I'll openly admit that just watching it on TV, I was quite emotional watching the pitches. I mean, how difficult was it to broadcast on that and and at what point did you know that something was severely wrong? Not really until somebody said so. Because I remember some of the people from St John's Ambulance by the touchline actually smiling sometime afterwards. Obviously, they didn't know the seriousness of it. And I thought, well, it'll be OK, we'll get by. Because you don't really think anything like that's going to happen at the time. And I was only about five games into my spell having decided to do that. So it was a horrendous shock, really. I just could not believe it. I was, I was just totally aghast. I think I was just... It didn't hit me, basically. Not for a long time, actually. No idea how to deal with it at all. They just come back to me for occasional updates of the ground. Um, there's not much I remember. I do remember Nigel Pepper just coming out of the tunnel and just sitting on his own for about just five minutes in, in sheer disbelief. It was just horrific. And I'll tell you one lucky thing in a way, because I'd covered Halifax Town for a while. When I came back from college, they were playing on a Friday night and nobody was going to the games. So I got the chance to get involved that way too and covered Halifax Town. And uh, Longy was at Halifax at that time. He was their top striker, as it were, uh, David Longhurst. And I'm very, very grateful that I never actually interviewed him. Could you imagine what it would have been like if I got to know the guy? Because it would have been much more upsetting if I had done and known him better, as it were. But obviously I got to know, talk to one or two people in the family after the event, as it were. But yes, it was a nasty shock and uh, you have to get through these things like everything else and it must have been really difficult for you to sort of interview the players and the managers back then and around that time because it you know such a somber time wasn't it and such a, a difficult period for the club it was the actual afternoon we spent most of the time by the gates I was I was with the fans a lot of the time um, and then eventually the then chairman came out and uh, told us what had happened and everything so it was it was just all, all very very strange all very strange indeed it was a real struggle and the Ericsson Thing. You, you just mentioned that of course you start thinking oh no not again but as it turned out he's okay thankfully I mean when it happened it just it just went down there's nobody went near him on the pitch it's just one of those freakish incidents you think maybe he's pulled something but yes it was a, a very strange time a memory but one I prefer not to have obviously in terms of on the pitch by 1992 York City really starting to go on an upward trajectory weren't they John Ward and, and Paul Barnes sort of key figures around that time it sort of helped elevate that, that talented squad of players did you as a commentator sort of there was some special building at the club yes almost from the moment and I don't want to sound like I was being too prophetic but uh, almost from the first moment I, I spoke to John Ward I thought this guy seems a bit special I was just looking through through diaries and a lot of this is 
from a, a reporter's point of view rather than the, the fans. A lot of them it's about people I've interviewed and spoken to at the time and the effect that had on me. And I first met John at Doncaster. They had a couple of games before he officially took charge. He just sort of watched the team for a couple of games, which was impressive in itself. You know, it's not just bursting in there, no, I'm in charge, all that sort of thing. And I met him at Doncaster and interviewed him there with Alan, or with whoever was still in charge. Alan would have been covering at the time, wouldn't he? I think he was still number two. And then they had this, this cup tie at Bridlington, which I think that John was quite wise not to take over just in case it all went wrong, because that could have been very embarrassing indeed. I know we won 2-1 and Ian Blackstone scored. My main memory of that is because Bridlington was a very small ground, not much of a press box. And me and Dave Gibbons from Radio Humberside, who I knew from working there, we did the commentary, stood on chairs with the, the notepads on the roof of the stand, as it were, looking around to see, see what was happening and everything. <laughs> it was great fun. But yeah, eventually, of course, we got to, uh, and this is very important, we got to the Aldershot game, the first match that John Ward was in charge, was Aldershot. But of course, you know why it's not in the record books, is it? Because it went bust, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so it's not there. <laughs> Officially, his first game in charge doesn't exist, but we know it does. And I think, I don't know who scored now. Was it John McCarthy? It might have been, because that got obliterated from the record as well, but whatever. I mean, John Bird clearly found some talent, but couldn't seem to get the best out of them, probably. John Ward did. And you mentioned Paul Barnes. He certainly was a talent. And again, the same sort of thing. John Ward seemed to be a very level-headed, very intelligent guy who knew what he was doing. And with Paul Barnes, we had a very intelligent, very level-headed striker who knew what he was doing as well. So uh, it was just happy days thereafter. And, and off they went. And that was when things got going. And yeah, I did sense something was going to happen. I had a funny feeling that John Ward was going to take us up. And uh, as you know, he didn't quite do that. Mm. But he set the foundations. And I think I think York fans re- remember your commentaries back then and, and your kind of encyclopedic knowledge about football and non-football things for that matter. H- how much of that is sort of written down, committed to memory, you know, in terms of sort of football stats and stuff like that? Did, did you mentioned there about diaries. Have you always been someone who, who sort of writes stuff down? Only the very, very basics. You can't see my picture on this interview, which we'll be very grateful. But the, my diaries have little things like bus and because I'm a bus enthusiast, you see. All my bus and train fleet numbers go into it. So I can work out roughly where I was at any point in time, going back 20, 30 years, if necessary, and got some idea of, of my movements. I'm not quite as obsessive as some may think about that. A lot of it is bluff. It's almost like being back at college where you're sort of just reading the summary of the chapter and bluffing it in the exam in a way. You just know enough and keep up with things. But obviously, over time, you get to interview the manager, the players, you develop a bit of a bond, you get some idea of where they're coming from, where they're going to. And then you can start painting pictures on air to give people listening as as realistic picture of what's actually happening out there as you can, given the rather severe limitation that although I've played football, not at any level, only at the bottom of the Sunday League, basically. It's going back to that first day in Radio Leeds again watching them put that programme together. I got into radio, not because I was talented or gifted or anything or pushy, but because I just love the art form. How do you put this programme together? And it doesn't matter whether you're a producer or whether you're actually on there for 90 minutes. You're just trying to paint these pictures to people so that people who are over there feel as if they're watching it, something like that. That's, for me, what it's always been about. The stats and things are just a tool, if you like. I try not to go too overboard about that. Some people have been critical of people who overdo the stats. They, they find them a bit tedious. So I think, never mind the stats, try and find some little stories or some quirky little things to throw in something like that. Sometimes that can be a little bit more entertaining. Also, there's a risk of sounding a bit too clever, which in my case is unlikely to happen. You mentioned there about your playing career. I, I do actually remember <laughs> um, growing up, I went to what 
watch a a football five-a-side tournament at Burnham School and Radio York had a team and I think you were in goal. Um, oh, God, no. <laughs> Alistair, Alistair Yeoman's played in midfield, I think. So I don't know if you remember that. I do remember it. That almost typifies my art of bluff. I, I was never really a keeper, but if they were desperate, they'd put me in goal. And there's one moment of that I'll remember for the rest of my life, and it makes me sound a bit big-headed, but it did happen. And their striker got clean through on a one-on-one, and I thought, I'm in trouble here. No idea what to do as a keeper, really, but I thought, right, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to lean to the left, make him think I'm going that way, and then just throw myself to the right. And I got lucky. He bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And next thing, I'm down on the ground with a ball in my hands, and there's this silence. And then suddenly, massive applause. I thought, what's going on here? <laughs> like, I've done it in front of 100 people or something. It was really, really weird. Weird. One of the most exciting moments of my life. I think there were more people watching me there than any Sunday league game, that was for sure. I was one of them. I, 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 I don't remember the save. Maybe I'd left by that point, but uh, it's, it sounds pretty epic. I, like <laughs> in a Dean Kiley. I mean, I, I recently watched, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Tony Cannon had a camcorder from Andy McMillan around the Wembley game. In, in 1993 and um, he basically filmed loads of parts of, of behind the scenes of that day and uh, and someone's uh, very kindly put them together and, and released them on YouTube and, and I noticed within that those sort of tapes the Wembley tapes um, you're coming off a team coach and I wondered was that a common occurrence in those days did you travel with the team? Not at all no that was a one-off a total one-off that the station managed to arrange I went uh, down with the team stayed at the same hotel I even went into Wembley with the team which was fantastic because you know, nobody knew I was in the press or anything I can remember going into the dressing rooms at Wembley as well everyone all the players just looking at the reaction to that and everything they were quite small in those days I think they're bigger now and at 12 noon I did a live piece into our news bulletin from on the Wembley pitch and went round with the microphone at one or two people who didn't look too nervous you know the, the level headed ones the Paul Barnes of the world and things like that so it was a wonderfully exciting time but it's great to hear what, what you're saying about TC and everything because you've got to capture those moments they don't happen too often and it was a wonderful moment for everyone then of course we all know what happened during the match don't we and indeed pretty well right to the very end of the penalties yeah that was my next question so what was your memories of that game and you know the old Wembley and uh, did you ever get nervous about commentating maybe for a match like that where there was probably maybe a little bit more exposure or more people listening in I'd have been very nervous about that one I must have been to Wembley seven or eight times now it sounds very blase I know but if you, if you interview somebody with genuine talent like Guy Mowbray he's been there scores of times now <laughs> he's up to here with the place but the first time I went there can't remember the order of it now I was there in the FA Vars final for Emily, would you believe? did some off-air commentary. I was also there for a Rugby League Challenge Cup final between Halifax and Wigan. I wasn't doing anything there officially. I was doing interviews with the fans coming in on the buses and even in in the grounds of Buckingham Palace at one point or virtually the grounds anyway that sort of area about half past seven in the morning I nearly got arrested because you weren't supposed to do interviews there apparently so I've been there a couple of times already but you're absolutely right to say that it was a bit nerve-wracking because it was just so important and you had to get this right but we'd done what we could Alistair was sports said a young lad from the University of York a guy called Nigel Adderley uh, was behind the goal he'd actually written to us just before Alistair arrived in, in March 19 1990. So uh, he was from Chester originally. Of course, he went on to Five Live as well in Match of the Day. You notice how all these other people have gone to bigger and better things, and I'm still here, by the way. You can read something into that, can't you? But it was a 
the funny thing was, I always seemed to have this belief it would all turn out right. And bear in mind that in those days, they'd only just started with the playoffs. They'd not had them very long. One or two people were complaining. Alan Little did. Ian Blackstone did. That, you know, we finished fourth. We should have gone up on merit because up until then, people had them. But now you had to go into the playoffs fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. It's still the case now, actually. So there was just this feeling it would come out okay. But uh, it dragged on a bit. And of course, uh, when uh, I think John McCarthy hit the post very late on things like like that and go to extra time. Then, of course, Gary Swan comes up with his goal, score, does, scores nothing all season, then scores in the playoff semis and then gets that one and think, well, it is going to be all right. Then uh, Tuck comes up with his handball and then it's not going to be all right. And then, of course, uh, yeah... Yeah, Ginna sticks his penalty right in that bottom right-hand corner. I picture it right now. Oh, what a wonderful so moment I... that was. Yeah. And did you, it seems like you were staying at the hotel. Were you, were you sort of involved in the celebrations then, back at the hotel or back on the bus, on the, on the coach on the way home? I don't remember much about after the match. Well, we're apart from after the match for some time, but I did go back with them on the bus. Uh, there were a few sing-alongs and things like that. Somebody might be able to help me here. One of my curious memories, Nigel Pepper led the sing-alongs, by the way, I can tell you that. And there's one of them where he started, there was a song they all sang, which started, close your eyes. And I'm thinking, they're going to go into the Beatles, all my loving. But it wasn't, it was an older song. There's another one that starts exactly the same way. I don't know what it is. I'd love to know what it is, because I'll bet you it was where Paul McCartney nicked the intro from. But they just sang along with whatever the old song was. They knew that one rather than the Beatles, which I was brought up on when I was seven and a half. So your little things like that. But yeah, they, they were singing all the way back on the bus. I can tell you that I'll give Nigel Pepper a text later on we've had him on the podcast I've still got his number I'll, I'll ask him if he what knows song that was, song I'd love remember. to know what it was yeah <laughs> yeah I mean it, it was an incredible time for the for the club as was probably one of your most iconic commentaries for York City was the, the Manchester United game at Old Trafford <sighs> and uh, United are in tatters I think was, was your quote after the third goal went in I mean as, as a fan who was there that night I mean I was so shocked and I vaguely my recollections of the last 20 minutes was just constantly looking at the scoreboard and in disbelief what was it like for you as a commentator I mean I'd imagine you'd have been similar to me like expecting York to kind of go and try keep the score down all night but then to come away with a 3-0 win which was nothing short of what York City deserved what, what was it like for you? Because you're commentating it doesn't really sink in you just roll with the moments as it were but it, it was just amazing it, and I'm lucky enough to actually be able to say how amazing it was um, there, were, there were three of us there it was a joint commentary I keep emphasising that with people because I got all the goals but all by chance and design I was rather hoping Alistair Alistair Yeomans was the other commentator might do the penalty actually but he's sort of wrapped up in a sort of way which sort of meant I had to do it so I ended up getting all the credit which I shouldn't have done because I just happened to get all three goals but there was me on the right Alistair was on the left in between us uh, the one forgotten person one Lucy Robertson a York City fan who again was with us on some work experience and she did do some reporting on York City later one of my fondest memories which and this really paints the picture was when because you can hear in the commentary Alistair in the background saying you know have a shot when Barney was about sort of 22 yards out and of course it bounced in front of Pilkington and goes in and uh, uh, yeah, just amazing and everything. And Lucy was uh, operating as our summarizer. And so I'm going, oh no, York City just got da, da, da. Lucy Robertson. Elsie, that's all she could come out with. And never has gibberish meant so much and I had so much impact that probably summarises just about every fan thought of them felt at that point in time it was just so exciting scoring a goal against Manchester United and of course there were two more to come yeah it was such a great night and, and I think I'm right in saying that at the National Football Museum I know once upon a time they had as, as you go in there was the thing where you can listen to various commentaries and it had like you could pick a certain team and I, I'm sure your commentary from that game is on as part of it and I wondered if you've ever been to the National Football Museum I, and, and realised 
realise that. I had no idea about that at all. <laughs> I'm astonished by that. Ah, oh, fame at last. But yeah, I suppose, yeah, well, inevitably. I mean, uh, again, even then we didn't do many full commentaries. We didn't really start to do full commentaries until the late 90s. The BBC sorted itself out and, and found the funds because local radios were too small. And Radio York, when it started, whenever the Lotus Seasons, the first picture of you came out, 83, it was just a B station. There was no chance, well, they couldn't have their own sport programme at the time that we had to do it joint with the radio leads because I was driving them. <laughs> but yeah, we didn't do commentaries very often, but we had to do a commentary on that. That was just too important, even though we knew, <laughs> we thought we knew that we were going to get well stuffed. And of course, as it turned out, we were very richly rewarded. But I, I didn't know about that at all. I had no idea that that, that was happening. I don't want you to make a trip to Manchester and find it, find it no longer <laughs> there. But this, this was, uh, yeah, a number of years ago, I, I remember going. Back, back then in the 90s, like you said, I mean, radio was a lot more prevalent back then in grounds, wasn't it? I remember speaking to Dave Ward the other day about how when York City got relegated in 1999, I remember sort of finding out that Wickham had scored that goal at, at, at Lincoln, I think it was. Yes. 10 minutes to go. And, and it was someone who had the radio just sort of attached to their ear. You know, like people used to have it and, and play it out loud. And I mean, you must have provided the soundtrack for so many people and, you know, York fans and, and lastly Harrogate Town who will come on to later. I mean, that must give you a lot of satisfaction. Sort of people must surely come up to you and say, I remember your commentary at this game and that game. I'm still waiting for somebody to come, come up to me and talk about that fateful day, but in, in a different way. And I'll just describe it from my unique point of view from where I was which was very odd when York went down you remember they lost 4-0 at Man City mm. on a fateful day that had saved themselves otherwise and they needed Wickham and somebody else either Lincoln or Oldham or something to not win and they both went and won and, and blew it but on the same it was the same day and I'm sure you'll remember this Scarborough went down as well to non-league football yeah. uh, the, the uh, infamous you got it <laughs> now what had happened at the time was Jules Bellaby was the presenter but he got, I think, an eye injury and he was missing for about two or three months. We had no standing presenters, but we did have a young lad who was a standing commentator called Phil Blacker. So I got taken off the commentary, which I wasn't happy about, but I was willing to because we had nobody to present the programme. Somebody had to do it. So I spent the last two months presenting. I wasn't at Main Road as it was then. Um, so Phil Blacker went to do the York City game. I was presenting. My tech-op was someone called Sharon Shortle, would you believe? Uh, yes, working her way up. And we were flitting. We didn't have a commentary on two sources. It was like all on the same channel, as it were. We're flitting between the two games, whichever was more in the balance at the time. And you remember Man City didn't score till about sort of 60, 65 minutes. I think Rodney Rowe missed a couple of chances from what Phil was saying. So I was in the studio. And of course, eventually it all goes wrong for York. And you mentioned the Wickham goal late on. And oh, that's it. We're doomed. But of course, I'm running this program. So suddenly Scarborough becomes the main thing because they're just about up. Carlisle need another goal to stay up. And I'm trying to sort all this out and get the balance right. Now, Sharon had fed the Scarborough commentary to Radio Cumbria so they could hear what was happening there. Because obviously they wanted to know because Carlisle might go down. And the Scarborough game finished first. When that happened, somebody at Cumbria and Sharon pressed a couple of buttons to the Scarborough game was on my desk that I was driving. So I could hear what was happening in Carlisle now at Brunton Park. So the York game finished, Phil Blacker wrapped up, oh, they lost 4-0. And I realised I'm, I'm watching these other two results, one you've mentioned, later scores. And while I was going through those later scores, I flicked this little key on the desk. It's, we, we call it in the trade a pre-fade key. So you can hear what's on that fader and what people would hear if I opened it. And I pressed the key. I just heard this racket. I thought, oh no, something's happened at Carlisle. I thought, what do I do now? Do I waffle and try and work out? I thought, no. 
cut out the middleman, just open it, let everybody hear it. It was like I rapped a Wickham, da da da, and then just bang the fader open, and the listeners just heard, Oh, Jimmy Glass has scored a goal for Carlisle United. There are people on the pitch. Oh, get off, you idiots, get off the pitch. And this was the people at Cumbria, of course, getting very excited about Jimmy Glass' goal. And one day I will meet somebody from Scarborough who is listening to that, going home from the match, thinking they're probably safe. And then there's something, I mean, I know York fans aren't supposed to like Scarborough from their point of view. It must have been a horrible horrible moment for them to have actually heard that and it was not very nice for me either because being at Radio York of course you've got actually got sympathies for Scarborough I knew all the people there I come from Leeds anyway we got a holiday to Scarborough and there's not the same rivalry as maybe people who actually follow York from the city of York as such but that's my main memory of that the Jimmy Glass goal and the way we suddenly got it on air because Sharon had flicked the switch and we could just put Cumbria's commentary on air if we suddenly needed to and bang we, we heard them relegated pretty well live and of course as you mentioned the goal's gone into legend Jimmy Glass you recognise that you mentioned the name straight away didn't you <laughs> as, as someone who's a, a supporter who's, who's gone to many games over the years you know m- most of the commentaries I remember listening to you were, were away games and, and one away game in particular stands out for me which was a bit before that time was when York played at Brighton in a rearranged game after the season I think on a random Thursday yeah. played at lunchtime and I, me and my friend were at school at the time I think we were sort of year nine and we managed to persuade our history teacher to let us borrow his radio and listen to it over lunch and I think York won 3-1 I think I think that they day did to, yes to stay up and you know, did, again did, what was that like commentating because you I think it was behind closed doors wasn't it almost or, or there wasn't many fans allowed in the game because of crowd trouble that happened before so I imagine there'll have been a lot of people tuning into you that day that was a weird one and the, the kickoff was 11.15 11.30 something silly like that normally I had a way of getting there by train because you can get through on trains from the Bedford line uh, it's one of the few that goes through London without changing but of course that was out here so I drove down I remember doing a piece for um, BBC Sussex actually um, from the Brighton area so um, yeah that, that was a, a, a weird it was another one of those where again I seemed to think it would come out alright obviously there was a big row about it I think Michael Knighton was the uh, chairman of Carlisle at the time and he was jumping up and down because I think that Carlisle keeps coming up doesn't it I don't know why because I think they were the victims of all this if um, if York won and, and stayed up and yeah, the Bull Stevenson, somebody else scored fairly comfortable in the end. I also remember my summarizer, a lovely chirpy young lad called Nicky Peverell. Remember him? I do remember him. Yeah. Lovely guy, lovely guy. Yeah, it's nice to have him alongside me at the time. But uh, it was one of those where you just seemed to feel he would come out all right. Actually, Mr. Nine wouldn't get his way and get it sort of obliterated from the records or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, we, we did the job. We survived. That's what we went down there to do. And, and of course, I was there for the riot itself when they pulled the goal post down wasn't great it's a long way to go for, to see 20 minutes of football or whatever it was and Andy McMillan's just there taking a throw and somebody must have made a signal I heard somewhere that they'd orchestrated the, the, the local station pub nearby that were going to do this I didn't know that at the time found that out later but uh, whatever and then they, they all came out on the pitch and deliberately pulled the bars down to make sure it would actually be abandoned so it was, it's just one of those crazy crazy incidents and we find ourselves still talking about them now <laughs> you sort of in a way wish it didn't happen but you look back of course all the problems Brighton had because if people don't remember the Goldstone ground had been sold off with no guarantee they could go anywhere and they ended up playing for years in the athletic stadium just think where they've come now uh, Brighton eh? it's turned out alright in the end hasn't it <laughs> yes. I mean, we talked about the 90s and, and promotions and cut runs, etc. But York City's su- success has never really been sustained. And, and the first sort of real low point for me certainly was relegation to 
the non-league in, in 2004. And I just wondered how hard it was sort of commentating around that period and, and, and then interviewing people sort of after games and, and trying to capture the mood of supporters and asking sort of difficult questions because it, it was a, you know, York City had a long, proud history, didn't they, of, of football league tradition. And for that to go, I think was a massive shock for the city. And it had a slant to it because of what had happened before, what, what the chairman had done over the ground and the fans had come in to save the club and had got very close to the community. And of course, they'd brought in Chris Brass, the youngest ever manager in the Football League, all that sort of thing, with Lee Nogan as his assistant. And uh, as you'll well remember, we went about four months without winning. We just couldn't buy a win at that point in time. I remember chatting to um, Sophie McGill about you know, what the key match was. She thought it was a Huddersfield game just after Christmas because Huddersfield were doing very well and it was nil-nil with about three minutes to go and suddenly they scored two goals or something like that. I reckoned it was a Kidderminster game. We were 1-0 down, but Kidderminster weren't doing very well and one of their players wiped out a guy called John Joe Dickman, it was, who was on loan. Just what terrible two-footed challenge, but the referee had positioned himself badly and missed it and they went straight up to the other end and scored. So instead of them being down to 10 men and us with a free kick, we're 2-0 down, it's game over and we've got our player right winger who's never going to play for the club again. So um, I put it largely down to that. We just, it was a lovely, lovely guy, Chris Brass, and I met him a couple of times after York City as well, actually. Uh, and Lee Nogan as well, funnily enough, because he was with uh, Neil Aspen at Port Vale. And they were lovely people, but they just didn't have the experience to pull out of that dive. You know how difficult it is when teams go on losing runs. And, and York City had been on that sort of run, other people as well. Al Little has suffered from it, Neil Thompson has suffered from it, and I think cost them both the jobs at some point. And always seemed to be just after January. I don't know why, but it was a, a very painful time. And it was the, the, the shutters came down at Doncaster, if I remember rightly. And the yeah. first thing that happened, almost on the final whistle, Sophie McGill turned up on my right side wanting to be interviewed and then and there because you know, we're all on the same side essentially it wasn't difficult it was that empathy if you like it was painful in a way as it would be for any fan but it wasn't difficult to do because you knew that you were on the same side and uh, Sophie made a very impassioned plea to you know stick with the club regardless uh, after that game at Doncaster and uh, you know in the end with the David Longworth thing there are more important things from football but it was a black day but the club had survived and it still has survived. And of course, it's now got its new stadium. That's it, yeah. And, and but my memories of that time was the last home game. I think we played Leighton Orient and uh, they were on a chronic run of something like 20 games without a win and, th- and they came and won 2-1 and meant that we'd come bottom of that league. And I remember someone holding up a flag that sort of said, we will be back or York will be back or something like that. And I wasn't so sure. And, and obviously, as it proved, it, it took a long eight years to get back to the Football League, of which was a really golden time really for York City supporters wasn't it two Wembley trips in 2012 and at that point you were sort of joined quite regularly by Chris Jones weren't you as a summariser what was that like your partnership with Chris and, and what do you remember about that that sort of era under Gary Mills oh it was all wonderful Jules Bellaby I mentioned him before he was sports head for a while he had the idea of having one-off summarisers from old York City teams so we got uh, Chris Jones in who I remember as being York being a bit of a pet team when I lived in Leeds and he got Jimmy Seeley one day as well but Chris was a bit more pushy I'd get to the ground he'd say because after it happened for a while Jules started for, to forget to set anybody up so Chris would say have you got a summariser Baz I'd say, um, I, I don't know actually I'm not quite sure if nobody turns up come along at five to three of course nobody would turn up so Chris would turn up at five to three and you come that's where it started he was, he was just really keen was Chris he was really really keen and as a result of that he, he became the regular summariser for a, a very long time and of course he was a bit of a hero I, 
I remember cutting out news, maybe too late for the newspaper cuttings. I think that was more Hull City days, late 60s, Wagstaff and Chilton. But I do remember the, the Jones Seal partnership, because obviously with York being a bit of a pet team, you can imagine how I felt in the sort of 74, 75, and they're sort of up there in the, the second tier of English football. It's just amazing, was that? So uh, I knew those names and one or two others, albeit I never got to see the matches be, being in Leeds. But uh, they were wonderful times, wonderful days. We got quite a few places together. Things came and went. I was a sort of I missed two years as a commentator at one point then he was still with us when and I, he was more permanent feature than I was for quite a long time and afterwards too but uh, yeah there were some some amazing times then he was it was a natural he just was he was a total natural on radio and it was just great doing it with a genuine York City legend there's not a lot more I can say than that really yeah and, and his wife's gorgeous as well by the way Therese yeah, is yeah, a, a very yeah. fond family man his three daughters and everything yeah big personality isn't she his wife yeah yeah I mean I think I sort of gained more respect for you after you stopped commentating at York City because I remember coming back from from a game once and, and you were doing a I can't remember if it was Tadcaster Albion I think it might have been Tadcaster Albion and it was somewhere like near Swindon or somewhere like that and I think it was pouring it down with rain and it was some sort of random early FA Trophy game or something or, or maybe it was the longest they'd gone into the competition or, or something like that and I just remember you, you sort of spoke for about a quarter of an hour about this game and, it, and you were so passionate about it it might have even gone to extra time or something like that and I just sort of realised that you know it didn't matter whether it was York City or whether it was Tadcaster Albion or it might have even been Selby Town or someone like that but you were so passionate about it and, and you knew so much about it I wondered how much do you do the same level of research for every single kind of event that you, that you go to it seemed sort of incredible how much you knew about these two teams that you were you were reporting on I usually do something so I've got some idea of some idea of what I'm talking about uh, your, your memory doesn't fail you Dan by any means it was Tadcaster Albion at Highworth it's near Swindon is it indeed right. and it was a semi-final of the FA Vars I think ah, it was because right. Taddy was still in step five in those days and it was the furthest you write again the furthest it ever got in the FA Vars it was two-legged so you have the second leg at Ings Lane so I got sent down to Highworth um, it was, which was great fun and it's a long story but I spent several months covering grassroots football very much at my own choice which coincided with Scarborough's demise and their re-emergence at step six level which was a bit insane but that's how it was one of the games I did in, in that brief period was at Yorkshire Amateur Scarborough there Ryan Block scored six goals for them which was incredible I remember interviewing him after the game and his mother wanted a tape so they're exciting times and Taddy came with that as well by now if nothing else I'd now got established as a sort of grassroots commentator so I got sent to Highworth anyway commentating on that was a good laugh because the, the press facilities were zil at zero uh, absolutely and the ground had fans all around it you couldn't really get a view if I remember rightly there was a little porch by the clubhouse with, a, with an open window and you sort of stood in the porch looked round the window at the pitch and tried to look down it which was slightly elevated so you could just see over the fans and have some vague idea idea of what was happening. Any player identification, I can assure you, was almost total bluff. Taddy was much easier a couple of weeks later, but um, rather sadly, um, they went and lost that 1-1-0 and after the final whistle, there was a punch-up to go with it. But uh, there you go, that's grassroots football. <laughs> In 2015, you you were asked to cover Harrogate Town until further notice. I think. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, what a, what a journey! I mean, two promotions, an FA Trophy uh, win as well, two Wembley trips. I mean, it feels from the outside like you, you're a really good fit for that club and that that community, and I think really highly of you. What what's it been like covering Harrogate Town? Because it's been such a, a rise, hasn't it, over the last few years? Oh, it's been tremendous, absolutely tremendous. A young lad called Rob Wilson 
who played football at a low level himself, uh, had been covering them. I don't think he realised um, when he, he had a child just how much that would sort of eat into his life. So after two or three games of the season, he basically gave up. So they have to stop commentating and, and raise a family. Hence the, the comment from Sharon, can you, can you do Harrogate Town until further notice? And that was in uh, 2015. And I know it's in 2015. They had a game at Monday at Curzon Ashton. Uh, where they went briefly top of the table actually they they won it 1-0 and uh, my mother died the next morning we knew she was going anyway at the time we'd been looking after her for some time so it was quite a painful time as well but yeah it's the time with Harowitz it's not unlike the John Ward era in a way it just sort of coincided with, with, with my arrival I don't think I had anything, any influence on him <laughs> but uh, I'd love to think so but actually I should talk about that actually for a while I was a jinx when I was at Radio Leeds what an atrocious jinx I really was I, I got rid of three managers in three games at one point I did a Huddersfield Town game McBuxton went just before Christmas I did um, Huddersfield's game at Blackburn they drew one all Simon Webster got the goal um, and that uh, saw the end of Bobby Sexton who you'll know as a York fan of course because mm. he was here for a while not very successful I don't think and then Malcolm Scott the uh, then associate director at Bradford City is now an honorary president or something which is wonderful lovely guy helped me out in some of my first ever commentaries he rather foolishly asked me to as a fan just to come and see Bradford City play not knowing this reputation and they drew a nil-nil with Birmingham and other results went against them. They went bottom and goodbye Trevor Cherry. So I got rid of three managers in three games. So John Ward and Simon Weaver have come out with it fairly well. Funnily enough, when Simon Weaver first took charge, he was player manager. And for some reason, Rob Wilson was missing for one game. I got sent to an FA Cup second qualifying round tie, which finished Bradford Park Avenue 4, Harrogate Town nil. And I commented that the result probably flattered Harrogate. They were that bad and... Um, Simon Weaver wasn't playing for long after that. My commentary includes a point where he got dispossessed and they scored from it. So uh, that's the, 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 about as far down as it went. But of course, after that, it was all in the up. And he's a lovely, lovely guy, Simon. He really is. He, he's great. He'll do anything for you. And the players he brings in, you can see what he's looking for. You, you tend to get these, this idea that players are all sort of monosyllabic because sometimes they are in the Premier League. You don't get them at Harrogate, I tell you. They, they don't sign dumb players. Everyone's been a good talker since the beginning of time. They're wonderful. They, they're all there for a reason. They've all got, you know, the right sort of attitude. And you, you can see why the clubs achieve that, what the manager's looking for. And some of it comes through the strength of his own family, I think. I mean, we all know his father's chairman. But of course, um, I think the egg came before the chicken, as it were, because the manager was in charge before his father came. He brought his father in to help them out afterwards, as it were. So now they've got that literal family situation to build and, as it were, family club and that's exactly what it's like the pandemic's not helped because you don't see so much of them anymore which is very sad because you know at the end of the game I just mix with everybody and do interviews anybody who happened to be passing uh, at Harrogate and it was the same on Mondays when I went to interview them before the games on Tuesday I'd go up there at lunchtime when they were finishing training but they've just got that family atmosphere they've just got something basically happening there which has got all the right attitudes and all the right sort of, of direction and they're punching above their weight and it's not difficult to see why once you're part of it. I'm actually very, very lucky. I've got in the right place at the right time, if I'm honest. The recruitment from Harrogate looks, you know, incredible from the outside. And and even now, I mean, they've just signed Luke Armstrong, haven't they, that was part of Hartlepool's promotion winning, winning side. But there's also like a core group of players that kind of came up with them from the National League North as well, wasn't it? Like Josh Falkenham and, and players like that. And as I pointed out towards the end of the FA Trophy final, which was delayed a year because of the pandemic, there was a point the last sort of 10 or 15 minutes that game, all the players on the pitch were there the year before. So these are non-league players who are now playing 
as football league players, yeah, the strength of those clubs do. They bring people in. That's what football clubs do. But the core of the side is still the side that played non-league football. And quite a few of those, including one or two you've just mentioned, actually come from the second tier of non-league football. And it's wonderful to do that when you can actually achieve something, not by buying your way to it. You're waiting for it to have a go at Salford here. <laughs> favourite favorite target. But yeah, not by buying players in, but by developing them and allowing them to become better players. That's wonderful to see. And that's one of the reasons that Harrogate Town are, are so popular. Fans can sort of believe in that. It's not like, oh, you know, you just, just buy somebody else in or somebody else in. When they're there, they, they have the potential to go further at that club. And, you know, they're not going to be dumped the moment they get promotion or something like that. They will be given their chance. And if they're good enough and can improve, um, they will get that chance on the next level or even the next level after that. It's wonderful when you see that happening. And it does end up creating a wonderful environment for a football Club. Yeah, and and they play good football as well. You know, I think I think most York fans would, would agree with that. And I think it's just bitter pill for York City fans to swallow that. I think John McCarthy once said it to me that, that Harrogate was almost the team that you'd go play in pre-season. You know, as, as a bit of a favour. Whereas now they're they're kind of obviously two divisions higher. Just sort of bringing it back to your career. I mean, how much has it changed broadcasting and commentating since you first started doing it in late eighties, early nineties? Enormously. For a start, we never did commentaries in those days. For a second thing, as an authority local radio wasn't taken that seriously as I mentioned before the, the local papers were your definitive authority uh, that the guy from the Huddersfield examiner would go to all the home games the away games I did Huddersfield for about two years or so through Malcolm McDonald's entire term of office in fact but didn't always do the away games and I realised that's what you needed to do so it was very hit and miss very bitty in those early days now it's taken much more seriously full commentaries every game lots of preview material lots of stuff after the game you, you, you worked a lot more you're much busier there's much more chance to show properly what you can do if you're prepared to make the, the time and effort and even to move things forward in a way I mentioned York City about how when I came to York in effectively 1990 virtually and I saw the chance of both York and Scarborough having commentators or reporters that were going home and away for every game that was quite unusual in those days now it's commonplace most stations apart from possibly Radio Devon where it's a bit geographically impractical but even they have people up in this part of the world they can rely on um, one of Radio Devon's regulars in Yorkshire used to be a guy called Julian Gaunt actually who was a, a bit of one of my protégés in the Halifax days in the early to late 80s or so you see people like yourself because I was shy and immature to start with and Julian was always a bit nervy and never dreamt of doing a commentary couldn't do a commentary he's done loads now He's done loads now. You just need a bit of encouragement, that was all. There's a lot of potential talent out there. So it's taken much more seriously now. It's much more thorough, much more detailed, and we're getting much more deeply into things. And just to give you an idea what I mean, I've just been talking to my line manager earlier today, and uh, Sharon's been doing these pieces on our Olympic hopefuls and things like that. And what they want me to do is contact the various members of the family so we can talk to them when they appear at the Olympics. doesn't matter whether they win a medal or not. It's just a big thing for the family. So, we, you know, local radio's got to that point now where we're, we're really interested in, in the people, not just who scores a winning goal or whatever, but everything about them, what it means to the family and their friends and, and things like that. It, it's got much more thorough. And as a result, there's much more of a human face on it now, I think, as well. I think local radio appreciates that. And at places like Harrogate, you can get down to that from, from time to time. You, you can get down to, well, all right, um, if you look at their top score or something like that, you know, it tells a 
bit about your days in Scotter, little village near Scunthorpe, things like that. You can get down to the little details and that will continue to happen as well. So it's much more thorough now and much more interesting for that. I love it. And um, as you've been sort of broadcasting for four years, and this is a bit more of a lighthearted question, what's the biggest faux, faux pas you've ever done on, on air? Uh, some of them aren't broadcastable, I don't think. <laughs> but you do, you get tongue twisters. City comes out slightly wrongly sometimes. Uh, <laughs> so I was, I've, I've, usually I've covered my tracks fairly well. One of the funniest faux pas never actually happened, but uh, I said something at a cricket ground where one of the opposing players lamb bastard me for some reason something I said he misheard it completely it took me ages to work out what he thought I'd said <laughs> it was certainly very funny and wretched but at the time I thought what have I done what have I done I'm trying to think now I've probably said quite a few things that are embarrassing over the years but I, I try and forget about them as quickly as possible there's lots of funny incidents I remember all sorts of strange things I remember John Parkin's own goal can't remember who it was against but he was defending I use that term very loosely on the corner of the penalty area nearest the corner flag where it's been taken it wasn't Booth and Crescent and the corner was mishit to him and he tried to knock the ball basically into Newborough Street over the main stand. It sliced off the outside of the left foot, went to the top left-hand corner. That's unbelievable. I've never seen a known goal like it in my life. But yeah, I've fallen down the steps at a couple of grounds. Did that altering him? That was something. But you see, there's nobody there to see it. And I spilled an entire mug of tea at one point. I had to keep quiet. That was a funny. It was at uh, Grimsby. I dropped something on the floor and was picking it up and I saw drip, 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 drip. I thought, what's happened now? And um, Chris had managed to spill his tea on the notes of Matt Dean from Radio Humberside, uh, which wasn't great, but he'd spilt it five seconds before he was about to pick it up and read off it on air, which is very funny now, but he didn't think it was very funny at the time. So the place was awash with tea. My tea at Gillingham, I mopped it up very quickly because Chris was away watching a TV screen in another room, get rid of this quickly before he sees I've done it because I've wound him up so much. So I've never admitted to that until now. <laughs> I live for the days where York City play Gillingham again. And just to sort of finish off a, a final question, have you got like a, a favourite interview you've ever done or a favourite manager that you've ever worked with or, or and conversely, what, what's the most difficult interview you've ever had to do? Oh, crikey. Hey, I did interview Howard Wilkinson once. It was all right, actually. I got temporarily seconded to Radio Leeds for just a couple of days. I don't know why. They signed David Rowcastle in that period. So I interviewed David Rowcastle. If you respect people, you tend to get it back. So I think I interviewed in my early days, some of the questions were a bit naive. I think I upset Mick Buxton at one point when he was at Huddersfield by asking something a bit silly, but very thankful. Right? He got sacked. He got sacked the next game, didn't he? Eventually, not very long <laughs> afterwards, it's turned oh. out. Well, maybe I was right. I don't know. But I've come out of it fairly well. I've, I've seen some dodgy things done from time to time, but I've never, I don't think I've ever had any, any collapsed in. I'm very proud of that. I've not really had any collapsed interviews. One or two have been a bit tetchy at times. I've been set up a couple of times with little things as well. But uh, generally speaking, I seem to be fairly good at self-preservation and covering my tracks. That's the thing, uh, which can be quite important. I'm just trying to think of some now. Again, Malcolm McDonald. I always got the impression that some people thought he was very touchy, but I got on perfectly well with him. It, it was fine. And bear in mind, I had to interview him. I lost 10-1 at Man City once. Can you believe that? Well, he still did the interview, bless him. What more can you ask for? And I interviewed Brian Clough as well. Very briefly, uh, they played Halifax 
in an FA Cup tie and they passed the ground and decided to have a look at it because they'd heard most of it was like a beach, which it was. It was nearly all sand. Uh, it was only a short interview, but again, it was fine. It was all right. And he had no idea I was coming. Virtually doorstepped him at the bus. But uh, yeah, and then Billy Bremner was a challenge as well. Tom Scope was always telling me he doesn't suffer fools gladly. Well, he, he must have done. Because <laughs> I did three or four interviews with him, which went okay. Billy was great to talk to, by the way, because whatever you asked him, he would answer it. If it took 10 seconds, it got 10 seconds. If it needed two minutes, it got two minutes. He'd go round and round and round the houses and come back to where he started. But it, it all made perfect sense. His incredible football brain. I remember another manager, but not say who it was. He used to try and be Billy Bremner, but it was very much the opposite. He'd go round and round the houses and finish up somewhere else. And uh, as a result of which, when he got back to the studio, the Billy Bremner interview sounded great on tape, but useless for clips because it was all meant to be a two-minute argument. The other guy sounded great in clips. It made second. It made sense in 20-second clips, but sounded nonsense in two-minute chunks. But there you go. I think if you, if you survived Brian Clough, I think you've done better than, than uh, many, many an interviewer. <laughs> and, and then just very final question. What's your favourite ever game that you've you've commentated on is if there's any that you could ever go back and relive is there any games that you think oh I wish I could absolutely go through that all again you mentioned some of them already Dan obviously I mean Man United was just so unexpected it just wasn't it was if we can just get out of here with a 3-0 defeat or something like that that, that was just amazing and the same goes for 93 and crew and all, all, all that sort of thing anything where they've scored lots of goals I mean the goals are plenty in the uh, Gary Mills here obviously I mean, seven against Kettering I think it was six yeah. against Braders piling them up left, right and centre. They're such exciting times. Comebacks are great. Anything involving comebacks or, or late goals. There was a 5-4, but we lost that at Maidstone, didn't we, I remember. I but, remember uh, the 4-3 against Carlisle once, where I think yes. got the 3-1 down with yes. 12 minutes to go. That was a good one. Yeah, but was it a guy called Paul Stevenson had a big yeah. say in that scene to remember as well. That's right. Yeah, That's certainly up there. I mean, when, you, when you're that much down, you're going to win 4-3. That was, it was special then, and that, that was special now. The only problem with that, Dan, is you've actually got to go 3-1 down to start with which you could do without but uh, there have been one or two of those but yes, your problem with doing more than a thousand commentaries they all tend to blend into each other you, you think you've seen it all and then something else comes up there's always something waiting around the corner there's always some 50 yard back pass at Stockport which bounces over the keeper's foot like in the Spanish game and goes to the back of the net you never know what's coming up next and there'll be some more to come I'm sure there will and, and uh, you know, I'm sure Harrogate fans look forward to hearing those next season and uh, yeah thanks thanks Barry for thinking about your time it's been you know really good to hear your insights of your career and like I say I said at the start of the programme you know 40 years in broadcasting is an incredible achievement so you know well done and uh, good luck in the next next few years adding, adding to that 40 years Big thank you to Barry there for speaking to us. Really enjoyed that. Someone who obviously grew up listening to his commentaries, particularly away games. You know, radio was such a big thing back then. I'm not saying it's not now, but but it, it was a different sort of era and a lot more kind of prominent and, and a, a key place for you to get your information. And Barry, as he, as he says there, you know, it was part of that first wave of, of local radio covering full matches, full live commentaries. So, you know, it was unique in that sense. And Barry's a unique character in himself. And he mentioned there about that, that song that they were singing on the coach. I did contact Nigel Pepper to see if he could remember it, but uh, Nigel said he'd had a few beers and he couldn't quite remember what it was, which is absolutely understandable if you uh, put it into context of the game. So that mystery will unfortunately go on for Barry.
This is uh, the last episode of the, the sort of regular series. We're still hoping to put out the Brodie Live. I'm sure that'll be available in the next week or two. So finally, once again, just thank you everyone for, for listening and getting behind Hospital Ball. Again, I, I, I probably sound like I repeat myself on a regular basis, but we, we really do take it one series at a time. There's no kind of grand plan with it with any of this. People have sort of asked about doing more series and more live events. This is very much a side project. And in the first instance, it's it's kind of how it, how it can fit around my work. So it, it may well be that Hospital Ball has a little bit of a break now but you know like I say that the responses to the series and, and the continued support of it certainly doesn't go uh, unnoticed and it does help in terms of being motivated to try, try to do uh, more things in the future so hopefully that, that will be the case but genuine thanks to everyone who donates you know, justgiving.com forward slash your gospel radio. Anyone who puts a positive comment on Twitter or Facebook or personally, and always really, really appreciated. And it, it's been a, a real pleasure to, to kind of put these episodes together for people. So thanks again. And uh, in the meantime, if you're at the new LNER Community Stadium, we're, we're kind of in the media bit, which is close to the kind of main stand, as it were. So if, if you want to pop and say hello or anything like that, then, uh, then by all means do. It'd be a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks a lot. Bye.